morning from your friends at Sinclair Media Group. Here are your headlines across the nation. A desalinization plant in Baltimore was ransacked last night after management announced to the city council yesterday that it would be raising prices by 30%. Among the items taken from the plant include several dozen water testing kits, sanitizing lights, and weapons. A fire tornado touched down in Eugene, Oregon last night, but thankfully no one was killed. The tornado ran through several automated warehouses and a combination Red Lobster Olive Garden restaurant. Hope you still have photos from prom! Apple has announced the winner of their latest lottery. Anyone who has saved a photo on their phone from Tiffany Trump High School Senior Prom 2030 has won five free years of Apple Care for their devices and body. And finally, our top story. The 79-year-old CEO of Ali Uber and Senator from California Elizabeth Holmes has announced that their comprehensive subscription service has been successfully implemented in 45 new cities, creating $18 billion in value for shareholders and leading to only 24 arrests and no deaths. This latest rollout is the most peaceful product launch in the company's history since the so-called Civil War merger of 2025. Still, you can't satisfy everyone. Reactionary forces in Cleveland are ungrateful for the new service, which they say they don't need and never wanted. Ryan Seacrest IV reports. Thanks, friend. We're here outside of Mike and Dee's Diner on Euclid, where dozens of regulars can enter the restaurant, but their money, literally, is no longer good there. Only 10% of the city's population is among the 30 million happy and satisfied Ali Uber comprehensive subscribers. That means the vast majority of residents can no longer visit most restaurants in the city, which have taken advantage of Ali Uber's subscription plan. In the Cleveland, Ohio metro area, subscribers can eat out four times a week at any of the restaurants as part of their plan, but of course, they're the only ones that can eat out. As everyone knows, but Cleveland residents are just finding out, restaurants participating in the program can no longer accept cash. In cities where the services have been rolled out, it has been estimated that customers pay up to 40% less for their meals. We spoke to one person who was standing outside the diner and isn't happy about how much he could save through an Ali Uber comprehensive subscription. Brian, I went right into my favorite diner. And they said they don't take cash. You need Ali Uber credits to buy anything. I, I said I don't have a subscription because I can't afford the monthly fee. But they keep saying I would save money by subscribing. It doesn't make sense. I, I just want an omelet. No one inside the diner enjoying the fresh new menu with a local flair said they had a problem. And we're very grateful that Cleveland could be part of the future. Ali Uber is partnering with social services in the region to help those, like the person we just heard from, afford an Ali Uber basic subscription. The company says that anyone interested in that program should provide a hair sample and the certified results of the latest emotional competency test to their assigned local health services and self-care Sherpa. This is Ryan Seacrest IV, signing off. Thanks, Ryan. Well, that's all the news we expect you can pay attention to. I'm your friend, and this has been the headlines from the Sinclair Media Group, an Ali Uber company.
Hey folks, before we start the show, we wanted to draw your attention to a petition that's going to call on the Troy City Council to stop some proposed development on the Hudson that would uh, destroy the last bit of untouched waterfront forest in the city of Troy, as well as a site of historical and cultural significance to some indigenous peoples of the area. So you can find a link to the petition in the show notes. The Troy City Council will be meeting on Thursday, so I know it's kind of short notice, but if you are listening to this before Thursday night, please head over to the change.org petition that, again, is linked in the show notes um, and give it a signature. Thanks so much. Enjoy the show. Hey, everybody. How's it going? Hi. We are uh, hashtag blessed to be joined by uh, Ed Ungueso Jr., uh, a uh, reporter from Vice uh, Motherboard, and um, This Machine Kills. Hey, Ed. How's it going? Good. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So what? Uh, um, we. Uh, I, I guess we're we're actually going to kind of start off on a downer, unfortunately. A little bit, yeah. Yeah, which is a very like my very favorite author, really, and and a just a all around beautiful human being, David Graeber, passed away suddenly in uh in Italy. Yeah, David Graeber was hugely influential in your own work, David. Right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I read him, I think first in undergrad. Uh, debt was really you know the that great um that best-selling book debt has been like really influential but uh, i i i go with some of his deep cuts i really liked his uh his, uh article in anthropology about um consumption was excellent mm-hmm. we've talked about yeah. that on the show yeah fragments of an anarchist anthropology was the, the man was so prolific that he forgot he wrote that book mm-hmm. <laughs> I, as I asked i asked him about it once and he was like i don't oh yeah that thing i was like man you forgot you wrote a whole ass book man like that's so that's and it a, was such a baller a, you know it was a great one anarchist anthropology was like i think it was when I was also trying to like learn about m- learn more about anarchism in the present, and that was like his attempt to try to be like there are there's evidence of it throughout, you know, uh, the archaeological or anthropology anthropology record if we just like look for it, and that was like so empowering to have like a really positive view of uh, human nature and potential for for politics, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, his dissertation was on. Um these communities in madagascar that he would just i haven't read it but it's his first published book um but uh he describes it as like you know what happens if all that you do all day is like cast magic spells on each other and gossip like that's your (laughs) that's like that's your life Uh and and it's like that's just like so it's so fucking fascinating and he's like that's what life should be like that beautiful essay about like it, what was universal it? Was it titled, play yeah it was titled something like what's the point if you can't have fun or something yeah. like that it's mm-hmm. just like that perspective is so rare especially um, in academia where yeah. those things are kind of treated as superfluous or you know um uh, unserious i i was an anthropology undergrad and i remember you know prior to reading any of david graber's work i still had that kind of very mainstream perspective of anarchism as you know, just like lawlessness chaos. and chaos and yeah. And so that was really my first like introduction to the topic and thinking of it as like a serious political and academic endeavor. And it's a real, he was also, I've always been interested in what Antonio Gramsci called the public intellectual, which is the person who brings sort of the elitist knowledge created in the, in the university and brings it to the masses with the hope that it sparks revolutionary spirit among among the proletariat among the mm-hmm. working classes and he was like 
such a standard bearer for that mode of of public engagement. So it's it's a real loss and um, R.I.P. to a real one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah uh, it's really sad. I liked a lot of his uh, quotes, uh, uh, w- one of which was, I don't like people calling me an anarchist anthropologist because it's not an identity. Anarchism is something you do, Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, which was, was cool. Which um, made it really hard to refer to him as anything. It is still an adjective, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then the other uh, quote that's been, um, you know, floating around uh, in his passing um he provided a uh, definition of direct action as the insistence on acting as if one is already free, um, which like gives me a lot of life. Like I really like that, that definition. And I think that, um, you know, when people are just uh, taking care of one another, um, you know, uh, directly, even if it's like illegal, um, that's a beautiful thing. Yeah. Yeah. So again, RIP to a real one is a, it's a tremendous incalculable loss, but, uh, you know, he gave us a lot of tools to work with, and uh, we can uh, make his memory a blessing by uh, mm-hmm. by work, by building off of it. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, uh, Ed, you're um, you are the 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 millennial Ahab to the white whale of uh, SoftBank <laughs> and 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 all, and all of the uh, um, uh, uh, all all of the the let's call them the enablers, the financial enablers of tech, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, and so we ha- we brought you on today to kind of talk about the the inverse of that. Like, what would technology look like if we didn't have those bastards running everything? Mm-hmm. You know, like what if we were in control of this of the whale? Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> and uh, or maybe maybe the better metaphor is like we slay the whale, and mm-hmm. now all these tiny little fish in formation are are taking control of the ocean. I don't know. As, oh. No, you're doing <laughs> okay. great. Yeah, no, we're doing great. Right. Yeah, we'll, get, we'll get rid of that metaphor. No, but, we won't. I'm getting rid of that. Yeah. But, uh, um, yeah, so we want to talk about that. And then there's also, of course, the whale is still alive. We have yet to slay it. So we have also something to talk about with, uh, you know, Facebook just batting a thousand still, mm-hmm. uh, making our, our uh, great republic um, great again. Right. Yeah, I mean, so much of what you, you know, we're going to talk specifically about one of your articles recently, but I think this is just also work that you do broadly, and and it's part of our wheelhouse on this show. Um, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about, you know, you, you mentioned Uber in this piece, maybe tell us a little bit about kind of what the detrimental effects of their, you know, their like data collection policies, and they're kind of manipulating of, of legislation and the way that these things are governed and regulated. Right. I think Uber is really such like a great example. Um, I mean, on the one hand, we know, and it's been widely documented, the way in which its business model, you know, exploits the workers and the way its lobbying operation uses this immiserated class of drivers who are misclassified as contractors so they don't get benefits. It uses the the control it has over their lives to blackmail states, blackmail cities into passing regulations it wants or else it'll leave and deprive them of uh, you know job and income. But in transportation. Right, in transportation, you know, and and it's been able to grow to that stature because even though it's at the end of the day just a taxi service, right, it used huge amounts of money and the benefit of having, you know, an application to circumvent regulators. I mean, in the early days, they used to figure out what the names of regulators in a city were, and then 
give them ghost Ubers so that they wouldn't be able to get in the car, find the um, company and uh, shut them down. Um, oh my gosh. Yeah. This was, <laughs> this was like one of the key thing, because if they had, if they had been caught, you know, they would have faced like, you know, 20, 30 regulators each fining them or giving, you know, parallel orders um, for massive fines per day violation. But they, but they managed to circumvent that, even though everyone knew they were, you know, breaking the law. You know, and these things are come to them because, you know, on the one hand, they have a little tech. They also have massive amounts of VC funding. And the VCs are not interested in you know, creating a service that works for people. They're creating a service that as many people as possible adopt so that you can gain profit somehow, right? By achieving a monopoly, by charging monopoly prices and, and hiking the fares and cutting the labor costs. And the the interest, you know, of VCs, of capital, of the returns they seek are, I think, antithetical to transportation. So immediately we can see a conflict there. What VCs want is a return on an investment that justifies them putting 180 million or two billion into a company when they could have put it elsewhere, um, and that means. And just real quick for mm-hmm. the listener, VC is a venture capitalist, right? right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, venture okay. capitalist. So, like, you know, firms that will you know pull together a lot of money, um, either from private pockets or from other you know institutions, and invest it into a place uh, on their behalf uh, for a certain return, and then take a fee or a cut of that. Um, of that return. And a lot of these firms are behind uh, Silicon Valley tech companies because, you know, we're in an environment where there's not much returns in general, since there hasn't been like a a solid recovery from uh, the great uh, recession, right? That's when these companies arose. These companies arose providing jobs in a period where people didn't really have much income, right? And it allowed them to, you know, rent their homes, rent their cars, uh, you know, provide their services when they weren't getting any sort of, you know, when they didn't have security in the first place. So it's not a coincidence that like the funding and the labor uh, comes from that. It's sort of like a, like a vulture right. Keynesian economics, right? Where you, you need a big spender to jumpstart the economy. And instead of the government doing it, you get venture capitalists to do it mm-hmm. because then they can eventually reap the reward of the, of the economic activity that they've uh, instigated. But it's also, they'll get that return on investment in a way that also completely restructures future economic activity. I feel like you're sullying the good name of Ashton Kutcher right now. I don't <laughs> appreciate it. I do not co-sign this. <sighs> <laughs> yeah, you know, his work and we work was very important and, and valuable. <laughs> and, <laughs> really just, you know, change the game, change and, the game. And I think and we works also another example of this where like the companies themselves um, you know, they will get these large valuations and, you know, commentators like us might say this is bullshit, but like the real value is that they destroy regulations. And they mm, undermine yeah. rules and norms and infrastructures and political economies that might have prevented them from being profitable. Or when they fail, you know, because they're the tip of the spear, the next investment by those same investors will succeed where they weren't able to. Um, and that's really why companies like Uber and WeWork had valuations that were 10 times, you know, uh, what they might have otherwise been. And partly it's because, you know, you have people like SoftBank coming in the room and saying this company's worth 100 billion but also it's because if the company the company's activities continue right destroying regulations destroying public transit destroying rents then it's able to charge fees in the future 
and slay the competition in a way that might justify uh, evaluation approaching that. And that's important to investors because they just want the returns. They don't really care about anything else. Mm. Yeah, I've, I've always described Uber and companies like it as just like a big pile of burning cash. <laughs> right. And they right. just try to like push the cash onto other things and then those will burn down too. Mm-hmm. And then they just build whatever they want it, to replace it. Right. If you, if well, you, it works for the rainforest, so yeah, yeah, I yeah, see what the problem yeah, is. Right, yeah, because like Uber, it's important to point out that like Uber, WeWork, uh, several other well-known companies have never made a profit. Right. right? Yeah. Because, because that's not actually the point, right? And that's where the Keynesian economics comes in, like this privatized Keynesian economics, because the point isn't to necessarily make money as Ed said, like, unlike the spearhead, right? It's to alter things and uh, into a, a more profitable atmosphere later on mm-hmm. that they can that they control yeah and i mean here in the capital district where we're at like there are almost no cap no cap companies left because mm-hmm. uber and lyft just yeah, just, just re- out competed them and now of course you see a hundred percent 150 percent price increases for anybody using a rideshare service because well you know why the hell not a ride that four years three years ago cost 750 is now Fifteen dollars. Yeah, um, and, 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 and who does that hurt? It hurts all the working people who used to rely on taxis to get where they needed to go, as imperfect as they were. And so now you're paying double what you would have otherwise for transportation. And they don't have any of the regulations on them that like require them to like have handicap accessible mm-hmm. uh, um, uh, vehicles for medicab services. Yeah, and then these price gouges don't actually go toward uh, paying like living wages. So, right. like you know, there, yeah. there there is this is all um, you know just exploitation on a mass mass scale from like tons and, and tons of uh, you know atomized independent contractor employees. Um, and yeah, it's making less up. than minimum wage in most cases. Yeah, you know, if you actually chart out wages prices for Uber, I think you know in some cities the pricing experiments that they do every few months have dropped wages, you know, by half, you know, two thirds while trips, like you said, have hiked a hundred, uh, sometimes 200%. But if you look at the profit margin, they really haven't improved. They've been marginal at best, right? Because this company, and I think a lot of the VC funded companies don't have the unit economics to like radically become profitable. And the fact that they don't have that, but VCs are still pouring money into that should tell us that one, it should tell us they're not concerned about like making some sustainable, healthy enterprise, right? They want the money, but two, that it's a massive waste and maybe alternatives should be looked at that uh, go back to the original model that wasn't workable, right? The taxi model and figure out if it's not profitable, then does it need to be run? in the private sector, you know, in the first place. Uh, because if you, if, if even like $29 billion in private funding and an app and uh, a thousand engineers um, and so on and so forth can't make your, can't make you fix the unit economics, then why is it private? You know, why, why is this something we're letting companies do instead of just taking it on ourselves, I think. 
And um, you, you probably know more about this. I've been curious because with the slashing of all the regulation, you'd mm-hmm. think that this would be opening up for being undercut by like some type of cooperatization using, you know, a similar app and basically just, you know, uh, cutting out the profit uh, seeking like Uber or Lyft or whatever and just have every city have its own app, which is tied to like, I don't know, Google services or whatever. So whatever is the, the lowest uh, mm-hmm. uh, cost for all this uh, sat nav data and then just you know cooperatizing it and giving the as high of a wage as possible to the um the the workers themselves right you know i and that's something i've been like really interested in because i think there are experiments tending towards that direction in europe and in the united states it's been such i don't know if hostility is the right word but there's like there's just no interest really in doing anything beyond private partner public uh, partnerships when it comes to digital companies and or companies that purport to be digital and providing your own version of the service, especially if it's creeping into, you know, the public sector. I mean, part of it is because these cities don't have the infrastructure, right? And as you said, because they don't, they'd end up partnering with Google and Amazon or, you know, using Amazon web services, you know, or Google operate, you know, Google's services or some, you know, suite for businesses or cities that they offer to do what these companies can just do in the house. But I mean, that shouldn't stop us, right? Because the reason we don't have it is because we're not investing. And if we simply just, you know, decided to do it, that alone would be the big, I think, the biggest immediate barrier or short term barrier, right? Because there are larger questions. Cities, some cities can't do it because they've, their countries have entered trade uh, agreements with other countries where uh, corporations, are allowed to veto any agreements where they might have to share the data or corporations are allowed to demand if such an agreement is even being considered to veto it and also extract like more revenue, more revenue, more, more fees, more concessions from that city. And then some cities are just so have been so poor in recovering or been unable to recover, uh, you know, since the great recession that a lot of their assets aren't even owned by them except in name. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I know, I know that in the case of like municipal internet service providers, there Mm -hmm. are like several States that have explicit laws that say public entities cannot enter this industry. Uh, or it's just like it is barred from like municipal authorities creating their own ISP. That's so insane. Yeah, That's which, so is, wild. which is wild. <laughs> Can you imagine any other utility? Like, oh God, yeah. if we were trying to do public water in this day and age, like it would just it would be impossible. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, it, like well, Nestle would just be the only person allowed to lay any like pipe. So, <laughs> so, so, so. <laughs> well, this is like the Trans-Pacific Partnership uh, shit, where like the corporations could sue entire governments for like right. lost profits yeah. because right. of like laws they passed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, capital ends up getting like a veto on social policy and domestic policy because they can just like threaten a strike, right? By saying that either we're going to sue you or we're just going to leave if you don't do what we want. I think, like you said, those laws would be helpful in many instances by simply pushing services out of the private sector. But there also has to be a larger reconsideration of these, you know, things like Part of the problem and part of the reason why we're not able to really also undermine Uber, as an example, is because Uber has also successfully built in people's heads the idea that they should be able to have, you know, a car on demand at any time for any, you know, reason, right? In addition to the, to the uh, car culture that already exists in the United States. 
And part of the way to handle that, or might be the way to handle it, would be conceivably you have to expand transit so that if you do need access, you can get it, right? And that's not the question. It's just simply abandoning the idea that you don't need to use the public option. In fact, you need like an on-demand private one that's like theoretically always available for you at great human cost. Yeah, that was, this was actually leads into a good point that I wanted to ask you about um, in the motherboard piece, which we will link to in the show notes, by the way, and I suggest everybody go check it out because it's a really great piece. But one thing you talk about is how Uber uses rider data to basically for all the ends that we would think are negative, bringing in more drivers, bringing in more riders, which produces, which results in more traffic and more Mm -hmm. pollution and all of the things that we really don't need more of right now. Mm -hmm. And you talk about the ways that municipalities, city states can use that data to improve public transportation services. And I'm wondering like, how do we reconcile that valuable data that certainly cities in particular and counties could use to improve? You you basically sort of make the argument for like, no, that data shouldn't be held privately. It should be put into the public, public good. Yeah. It's an asset. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it is. And I totally agree with that, but I wonder how we reconcile that with the fact that like we live in a police state um, and Mm -hmm. like that data (laughs) going to the state is really Hmm. scary. We talked many episodes back about a, a guy who was a runner and he used to run through this neighborhood and he would do loops and there was a woman who lived in the neighborhood who uh was who had a break-in at her house and police tried to they they were able to kind of do this um drag netting of of uh, GPS data from people using Google services. And they found this guy who they didn't know his individual information, but they knew that there was a person using Google services who had gone by this house several times. And they wanted to subpoena his individual data to basically make him a suspect of this crime. And, you know, he was lucky enough. I'm sure it helped that he was like a white guy of means, but he was lucky enough to be able to fight it in the courts and not have his data released. But those are the kinds of stories that make me wonder, like, how do we deal with the fact that this is valuable data that could be used for the public good, but we just don't currently have a state apparatus that often works in the public good? And I'll, I'll just add on to that. One more example was in, in Germany more recently. Uh, Germany has a um, part of their COVID trace and, tracing and testing program is that like people that go into restaurants scan a QR code that then keeps a log of who has gone into that restaurant. And there was a, a stabbing outside of a restaurant, I think it was like a Munich or something. And uh, the police came in and wanted all of the information of who was at that restaurant, because everyone that was there could have seen the stabbing that happened outside mm. of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, the, and the restaurant uh, said no. And it was this huge, like, national scandal that this restaurant wouldn't help the police solve a stabbing mm-hmm. uh, but it was like but that we shouldn't do that though right? like well, that's not what that data was for innocence isn't a good defense against yeah. accusations of, of crime like, it doesn't of matter if you did it or not what matters is evidence so. right yeah so yeah and could you give us some guidance on what how to square that circle yeah i think that's a good question because you know at the end of the day the most advanced uh, actors in terms of taking people's data and analyzing it are what, like the police, you know, intelligence agencies and tech companies, right? All, you know, like a whole, an unholy trinity that we don't really fucking want in our, in our lives. Um, and part of that means that we also need to be having like parallel fights with undermining their own ability to 
either use the infrastructure or take advantage of private companies. I think like the immediate in the immediate sense, you know, that also means these fights to, you know, defund, you know, or uh, or abolish the police uh, need to at the in the in the very like immediate sense also go after their ability to make partnerships with tech companies and mm. also to try to create within cities bans on uh, partnering with private entities or with you know the larger state entities to um, share data i mean of course they're likely going to do this anyway but that needs the 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 the, the, uh, the ability of private companies and, and state authorities to work together is like one of the big barriers and reasons people should also be hesitant about as you said like doing a data a public data system you know the state apparatus can easily and already does just take public data and use it for whatever ends it wants, you know, mm. and, and also raises good questions and limits. I think that we should think about like, you know, uh, it wouldn't make sense, for example, for us to have like some state, I don't think like a state run Google, you know, be, maybe because uh, we kind of already have that with like intelligence agencies in terms of like how they're able to look through you know everyone's individual you know data if they need to. Right. But it might make sense to make um, the data. Um, accessible to public entities by creating public infrastructures that are cooperatives, right, or that are run by communities and municipalities at a lower level, at a lower level, and at a scale and closeness to a community that they can immediately control it. That when requests are made, they're immediately involved in those requests, and that it's much harder for state authorities to step in and much easier for people to reject, right? That mm-hmm. that requires a large move and, you know, movement, I guess, uh, to build up the infrastructure for that. Because at the moment, again, you know, the only people who have the infrastructure for this or the, the resources for this are private companies worth hundreds of billions of dollars and governments. Um, but if we were able to try to at least decentralize this infrastructure, and allow the way in which data is accumulated and extracted uh, to be to be closer to the people to doing that to, and give them more ability to actually opt out of it or opt in out of it to analyze it to collaborate. Then we would be introducing, I think, some barriers to the state coming in immediately and being able to take that information without using force, right? And yeah. if the and mm-hmm. the use of force, you know. Already, like they can do it privately with gag orders and 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 some of the secret courts they have uh, to force people to give it up and and not um, say anything about it, right? But I think they've also relied on with those the fact that they already have longstanding relationships with these companies that those companies don't want to expose in the first place, right? And part of the reason why it makes sense for uh, Microsoft or Facebook or Twitter or whatever company, you know, to agree to a partnership with the government is because they, they make money sometimes off other partnerships that they make with the government. Right. So I think there's like a lot of heads here that we have to cut off all at once because of how bad things are. But with like our eyes on the prize of, we want a public infrastructure, but we want a public infrastructure insulated from the state and responsive to the needs and demands of communities and localities and, and, and regions at most, right? Which means that mm-hmm. we have to do, we have to intervene with the ability of police entities, state intelligence agencies, and private companies to uh, steal that data 
or demand that data and also have to have our own infrastructure or take their infrastructure to uh, decentralize further, right? So that we can then be the ones who are in control of what the what the information is going to be used for. But it's going to be like difficult. Like it could easily go bad, you know, where we have, you know, this sort of thing and it's just a way for the state at the end of the day to like uh, query anyone if they think they're suspicious or, you know, of crime. And there are also alternatives. It could go bad. Like if we look at some of the developments that people use when they're red baiting with, uh, with China, I mean, on the one hand, Mm. a lot, you know, Mm -hmm. there are some surveillance systems in place there that came as a result of them trying to keep out competitors in Silicon Valley while they were developing their own, um, you know, uh, tech giants. And that worked. And there are also like really deep ways where because they created this firewall to keep out competitors, they've also created platforms that everyone uses that they're able to watch more closely than anything we could dream of. And if you had some public infrastructure where everyone is on it all at once, then you could, you know, conceivably have forms of surveillance. But I think it's worth the risk, you know, it's worth the risk to to own all of this um, and try to fight those things, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, it, it sort of sounds like basically the argument is that this is already happening. And so at least if, <laughs> mm. and I guess just like add it to the enormous pile of nice things we can't have until we get rid of the police. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> well, it, it, I was going to ask if you had any um, advice or inkling as to what would be an effective way of lobbying for a change. Like, you know, I think about uh, the NSA revelations given to the public by um, Snowden and the fact that, you know, people had their nose out of joint and especially like the media class wrote about it for a while but um there's bipartisan consensus on keeping all of this um you know state dragnet of everybody's uh, personal information in perpetuity and like it seems to be something that there's a very uh, clear ask to be stop being uh, spied on and there's a very clear answer by you know the people who own our society uh no yeah Yeah, right that is the huge that's one of the big barriers to this right where even if we even if you had mass consensus on it right as long as the people who are writing the laws don't want it to happen it's not going to happen and that's that's really like i think a stumbling block because it doesn't matter if microsoft says they're not going to partner with or if they weren't going to partner with prism anymore because they have other agreements, you know, that they're not going to tell us about that. I'm sure that they continued and, you know, kept, you know, doing even after the Snowden revelations. And most of these companies still actually continue sharing either telecommunications data or user data in one way or another yeah. with the government. So yeah. in some of the government partnerships, people are, you know, very loudly championing, like right. the whole ring camera thing where yeah. like mm-hmm. police departments are like being basically given cameras to like give out in raffles to be like this is going to save society like we'll be able to solve any crime like yeah and everybody on next door is like gobbling that shit up (laughs) like you know pigs at a trough yeah Yeah. Mm -hmm. we can automatically identify who is suspicious in your neighborhood and uh (laughs) i wonder who those people will be yeah Mm -hmm. it's it's (laughs) fucked up shit yeah you know and that's this is a huge problem this is something that i i think we're gonna have to you know, figure out some way to respond and provide an alternative to the development where everyone just becomes like a little, a mini cop, you know, because (laughs) that's, uh, that's where we're heading, you know, with the mass adoption of ring, 
um, and the way that it allows Amazon backdoor into neighborhoods or uh, police departments backdoors into neighborhoods, the creation of you know new surveillance networks through that, the creation of like these communities right like next door where the you're marketed a place to talk with your neighbors and then what do they talk about? Uh, there's like a group of five black people outside my door do they and they're here every wednesday what are they doing are they kate like you know like stuff like that is consistent that, that has literally <laughs> happened in our next door yeah. that exact conversation yeah it's, it's, but yeah, there's but also a very lovely elderly man who's always trying to get people to take his chicken hen plants <laughs> so you know it's not all it's not all bad i wanted to trans it's transition us away from talking about the current state of things and start talking about what could be possible mm. right and uh ed you you write in in your motherboard piece rather than having a ride hail company like uber that makes traffic worse loses endless amounts of money by underpricing its product and paying its workers poverty level wages we should aspire for a transit system that is free and accessible to all that maximizes coverage for passengers while ensuring fair working conditions for drivers and operators and i think this calls into question what we've been talking about right now or or what we've just uh, finished talking about is that um the data if we that currently private companies own if we just hand it over to the state that seems scary and i think part of that is just the nature of the data was collected by a for-profit firm and so the information that it collects not only for-profit but a for-profit company within a police state right the information that it collects is uh, naturally dangerous and so i was wondering if you you thought about like what sorts of new information or new means of data collection would uh wh- how would that change in a publicly owned or cooperatively owned data system right i think yeah that's a great question you know i think um Evgeny Morozov and his wife, I think, have written some of the more interesting stuff on this, right? So his wife, Francisca Bria, used to be an advisor to the Spanish government and helped design Barcelona's attempts to make, like, non-smart, smart cities where the infrastructure was set up so that the city owned all the data, but also that individuals would be able to decide, I don't want to have, like, any of my information or some of my information on. And that is like a step within the the stand, the system right now, thinking about how people can opt in and opt out. But there are limits to that, as you know, we see where you can opt out, but your information can still be cleaned if you opt in in other ways, right? Or even if someone around you opts in, you know, you can still have your information taken and sold in one way or another. Yeah, because um, there, there's some things like like Link NYC or right. I think the Quayside project that's now defunct in Toronto. Right. Like there are these things where like if you're just like walking through a public square, that public square might have some sort of data collection practice. And there's no like giant floating end user license agreement that you can click OK to. Right. right to to access it. So like the, the, the just the very nature of how we collect data out mm-hmm. in public seems like really hard to get uh, actual consent for. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think you know, I think um this was something that kind of touched on in uh Yevgeny Morozov's piece in the new uh, left review, I think it's called D- Digital Socialism where he tries to talk about whether or not we can use you know, his his essays there was this mass there was the calculation debate you know in the 20th century about whether or not uh the price system was the best way to organize because price is given input um 
Action at a distance. Right. Yeah, exactly. Right. And, and, and their responsiveness beats central planning, but his argument kind of hinged on the idea that, you know, today we have the technologies to extract new information that doesn't relate to price and doesn't need to relate to price and can still meet individuals, uh, concerns. I think one example he sketched out was a really interesting one by this guy. Uh, Daniel Sars wrote this thing called um, Information Technology and Socialist Construction. And, you know, he kind of envisions a way for socialists to structure planning without like a central planning board. Um, and he does it with this thing called a general catalog. And it's like a mix between you know, Amazon's e-commerce platform and Google's like search um, where people who make things are in worker councils, essentially, right? Um, cooperatives or some structure that workers themselves own um, that will list what they're willing to make or a service they're willing to provide in some widget that's similar to an app store, right? And individuals are given unique IDs um, that they then go on there to register their needs for a service or for a product. And all this happens during like a specific, uh, you know, registration period at the beginning of each production cycle. You rank it based on sentiments. You can give other information based on what you need or what you want, or maybe you're interested in also helping exchange and do an exchange for some sort of, uh, you know, to help produce something or provide something. And then when the registration period ends, people are given it based on their sentiments or based on their needs and the rankings of these things. And you receive some bonuses if like you uh, maintain strictly to like the initial predictions that you adhere to um, and stuff that isn't, you know, sold or exchanged is just offered up, you know, for free or returns back if it's used in the next uh, production cycle. These bonuses mm. then go to like a UBI uh, for individuals and they're, they structure incentives to consume less um, or to exchange more or to help more with you know, production. And as a result, you can you like from that sort of structure where we take like maybe we, we, we move away from having something that is publicly owned simply be a state enterprise and instead have it where we can replicate some of the structures of the market dynamics without the market. So we don't need, you know, for-profit, for-profit institutions. We don't need like the capitalist competition. We don't need, you know, the, the typical things that uh, structure capitalist, you know, reality for us. Instead, we just have workers engaged in like nonprofit cooperative enterprises and they're the ones who are sitting on the infrastructure uh, that people generate what uh, wants for and their needs for. And that can be like the first sort of, uh, he calls them feedback infrastructures, where it's like you see what uh, a large amount of people need and you respond to it individually. Then you could you know go up more from that where in a non-market or a non-capitalist you know, system, right, the data that people provide or the data that people would be willing to provide, I think should go beyond simply like what can be consumed, but just like what you, like literally what you need, you know, if you need, if you have a desire to help with some project that's going on, or if you have a project in the community that needs help going on, like that could be vocalized or 
um, collected or shared. You know, if there's like some failure in the, uh, if the in infrastructure, right? If there's an infrastructure failure, there's been power shortages, or there's been you know problems in housing units. You know, things that I think typically are not thought of as needs or services or wants that people may have because they're like tied to a private property you know that a landlord has or an infrastructure that the state maintains or you know something that's usually just out of your general life but still affects your general life um are the things that we should probably turn these data apparatuses towards instead of just like focusing on individuals to glean insights about behavior so that we can step in and make a profit does uh does that piece um reference uh project cyberson and like a yende yeah. chile at all yeah, yeah, that, yeah, yeah. it sounds very like yeah. cybernetic and it's sort of feedback loops mm, and stuff yeah mm-hmm. right yeah it also it's reminds like, me a, mm-hmm. oh i was gonna say it also reminds me a bit of that book uh people's republic of uh walmart that right. came out that oh, was talking yeah. about how the technological capability of data harvesting and processing and ai um it, the modern capabilities that we have would uh, essentially allow uh, modern corporations to essentially do communism but internally Mm-hmm. At least, like to some degree, um, uh, within their own supply chain and stuff, um, and that you know, hypothetically, we would be able to overcome a lot of the shortcomings of the uh, planned economies of you know the twentieth uh, century. Uh, now, with twenty first century technology, yeah, yeah. I mean, there and there's also like with this system, it's like there are a lot of things like in its initial formulation that we can like push back against. Right. Because at the end of the day, it's still, I think like kind of encourages like, or is built on the idea that it should be fine for all of us to like consume at whatever level that we want, um, regardless of like larger ecological concerns or where the labor is coming from, or if we, if it's being extracted from like, you know, the third world, or if it's being extracted or exploited from like, corporations or enterprises that are still corporations that use, you know, some form of labor weed or poor. But I think like the general idea, like you're talking about, like technology can be used to one. It doesn't have to be used in a way that hyper focuses on individuals to make a profit off of them. It can be used to spot problems and then have people have platforms for uh, working together to solve problems or to get help for solving problems in the way that we provide this infrastructure to get people to find, to work together to extract revenue or to extract profits from groups of people. You know? mm-hmm. I don't know, Ed, we already have this great system where we get like people like Mark Zuckerberg to identify <laughs> yeah. really complex problems and come up with like half-assed uh, solutions uh, <laughs> that, that don't actually get at the root of the problem. Um, this is a, uh, by Jeremy Merrill, from, uh, from ProPublica, this really ham-fisted way that Facebook is dealing with their ongoing um, uh, hashtag s- fake news. Yeah, hashtag fake news. <laughs> ha- ha- uh, ha- hashtag like slow burning of the republic through your your grandma's uh, Instagram feed. Facebook this week said it would bar political ads in the seven days before the presidential election. That could prevent dirty tricks or an October surprise and give watchdogs time to fact check statements. 
But rather but than also, res- do they think the October surprise happens in the last three days of October? Because yeah. it doesn't. Like, <laughs> the October surprise is like around October fifth to the fifteenth. Anyway, yeah. whatever. Yeah. So, so uh, rather than responding with glee, election officials say the move leaves them worried. Included in the ban are ads purchased by election officials, secretaries of state, and boards of elections who use Facebook to inform voters about how voting will work. So, a couple things. One. Um, yeah, your local election board has to buy ads on Facebook (laughs) to inform you about, like, very necessary public uh laws and regulations and statements about like how to do the franchise. Yeah, Yeah. because of our changing media landscape, like there's no other way to I have I have an ongoing battle with the city of Troy, in fact, that whenever something happens with our like water, specifically our water supply, they announce it on Facebook. They don't announce it on their Twitter account. They don't announce it on their website. And like as a person who doesn't have Facebook, I'm like, how the fuck are those of us not on the hell site supposed to find out that like yeah. when I turn my faucet on and the water is brown, like that that's an expected thing that's supposed to happen. So you got to check the Reddit. They don't po- <laughs> No, they don't post it. They literally, the city only posts it on Facebook. But then someone will repost it on the Reddit, you know, like that's like, Hey, yeah, for those well, not on ideally. Facebook. <laughs> Look, I gave up Reddit a few, about a year ago too. But anyway, to get to the point that, you know, David is making with this article is like, A, it's totally wild that like, election boards have to buy ad space to communicate with voters um, about these changes. And B, like one of the problems particular to this year is that we're going to have a rapidly changing election Mm -hmm. uh, uh, apparatus because new sites are going to be opening up last minute as, you know, we understand need and people are voting by mail and all of this shit. So it's like really disturbing that Facebook can just decide to turn off that faucet of crucial information for voters in an age when frankly america can barely be considered a democracy anymore because of how fucked up our voting system is so uh just horrifying horrifying development in the way that facebook controls our lives yeah like on the one side it makes sense that um you know like in a lot of more functioning democracies they put like a ban on political advertising several days or weeks until the, the election. The UK does that, yeah. Yeah, like the UK does but that. But it's political uh, uh, advertising. Yeah, it's not yeah. like announcements about where to vote. <laughs> yeah, you know, the, the, the UK, a, a, a bastion of democracy and well-functioning governance. <laughs> hey, but, are you trying to say Bojo is not the mandate of the people? Because I'm going to have to disagree with you there. You know, but um, but yeah, I, it just it, it just seems like another one of those, like, just ham-fisted, like, just Friday at 4.30, figure out the what you're going to do about it and walk out the door. I, I remember, I, I don't remember if I've said this on the podcast before, but I'll say it again, even if I have, is that, you know, back in 2016, I was teaching a course on the history of uh, digital design. And it was a great time to be teaching that course, because I, we were going over fake news and, and misinformation. And I tasked my students as just sort of like a, and like a, 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 an in-class project, like how would you deal with fake news on Facebook. Like, let's just, like, play with that idea. And my hungover, tired undergrads came up with the, like, put a button on it that says misleading information and fake news. (laughs) They came up with that in, like, half an hour. And, like, and, and I wanted to give them all Fs because I told them, I gave them all the reasons why that shit won't work. 
But then, like, Facebook actually did that. <laughs> and I was like, well, I, I don't know if I can, like, fail you guys if the actual company in this, for instance, did the thing so, that you guys said. And it's just, so like, so David fucking was, frustrating. When David was bitching to me about this... I literally, I looked him in the eye and I said, okay, do you have a better idea, <laughs> Professor David Adam Banks, who teaches this shit? And what was your answer, David? No, I don't. <laughs> well, because, because Facebook, it, because Facebook by design, this is like just the, like the conversation we were just having, right? Like Facebook by design is just meant to get you angry and like click on the site and like tell and like, you know disassociate yourself with your uncle and you know, like, I, 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 I got i got it i got it. Ooh, you know okay. you know how uh the the website i think it's just called genius now but it used to be called rap genius oh yeah um, you annotate there. everything oh yeah, yeah. Oh, okay <laughs> interesting yeah so yeah, so, uh, yeah no, would, so, oh, sorry. well it's just for those that don't know uh it's a website that has like all these uh, uh lyrics uh, especially like hip-hop lyrics and fans can submit uh meaning uh, behind the lyrics or like references that mm -hmm. are happening so that like if you're a fan of say Nas you could like you know listen to uh, one time uh, for your mind or whatever and then like uh, just get all the references and understand what the hell is going on because all of the um, the fans are like oh this is what he's referring to and there's like there's also a website called lyricsmeaning.com that does all of that too yeah so you could yeah. have that as your uh, content right which is to say there's like some type of uh, script you know transcript to whatever the video ad is or whatever and you can have uh people like highlight the point that's like incorrect and be like oh that's incorrect and here's a reference and like drop in a link with like your own uh you know type of so you basically it's like wikipedia yeah it's like crowdsourcing uh fact checking yes yeah, so, that's that's your so your family could say like dr fauci is actually a soros paid uh apparatchnik well that's that exactly what is I was trying to say. inject that's uh, literally uh, the reddit model of upvote mm -hmm. downvote and what it ends up doing, and I think da both David and I have written about this several times, um, is that what it ends up doing is just reinforcing a dominant narrative, which is entirely dependent on the users of your platform. Yeah. So what you do is, if you can say good or bad, and those are your options for determining truth yeah. or value, then really what you do is you create you recreate the hegemonic meanings that are endemic to a given platform and its set of users. Yeah, the, the totally right. ironic r slash unpopular opinions. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's yeah. why, you know, Facebook is a good example of, like, another dilemma where it's like, you know, obviously it needs to exist in a different form, but also, like, would a public version of it be any better in the sense no. that, like, Facebook might connect hundreds of millions of people, but, like, is explicitly constructed to just, like, make them angry all the goddamn time? Like, no, I'm put not, it in no. the trash. Put it right <laughs> yeah. in the trash. It's yeah. no good. I think we should... I'm Yeah, I'm not really convinced Facebook should exist. I'm not also really convinced that, like, massive social networks should exist in that like hundreds of millions of people need to exist on like one thing together even if it's in separate communities because like there's not really much i don't know if we figured out a way to do it but there's not really much like cross pollination of communities because it's like your friend group right that's the whole point of it it's like it's right. specifically your Tinsular, friends. Yeah. yeah so like why Ufos. does it need to be one thing i don't well, know you know what it should be it should be 4chan yeah. <laughs> oh. Just kidding. Just kidding. It should be eight chan, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Eight yeah. chan. Where like they 
They're like mostly sure that QAnon is the guy that runs 8chan now, right? It, it has been yeah. suggested. Yeah, uh, check out our next bonus episode for actually, a dive into QAnon, actually. So it's Patreon Satoshi. I, would, I think it's Satoshi. That's the guy who's a uh, QAnon. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah did they ever figure out who's like cashing in a bit? No, I don't think they did. <laughs> no, but I, I, I think uh, Adrian Chen did something a long time ago about trying to figure out who that guy is, and it, he was inconclusive also. I read uh, it. I got, cons- new, I got oh, oh, sorry. I was just going to say, I read a conspiracy theory once. It was like, it was amazing and how it went everywhere. They tried to say it was just like some bored um, CIA agent who locked himself out. <laughs> so it was <laughs> <laughs> Like, oh fuck! My du- my dual authentication uh, uh, app is like on a phone that I dropped in the Potomac. Like fuck! It was such it was such a beautiful fake story. <laughs> That's great. Love it. it. All right, so I got a, I got a new idea. Um, so the idea is the public version of like Facebook or Reddit or whatever, um, but it's tied to like a Fitbit esque biometric sensor that does a digital vibes check at all times <laughs> oh like it, verit but tied directly to your auto, your body's autonomic systems yeah, yeah, okay yeah, yeah and, i like it and, and so the whole algorithm will be about promoting positive vibrations and good vibrations good, 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 there'll be vibe good checks vibrations. it'll be great <laughs> yeah uh, a chief operating officer uh marianne williamson yeah yeah <laughs> and, and and so we'll, we'll call it like the uh eye orb and you basically just have to like put your hand on it and that's that's also going to be how you like track through the website or whatever right? Love it. Uh, and as soon as you start getting like irate uh because of just people being insufferable um it immediately like changes the, the content to like i don't know while also releasing a spurt of endorphins directly, <laughs> directly into, <laughs> your brain. into your yeah, brain. It, it yeah. will actually have to be connected to the Neuralink. So you can only, the only way to get oh, off of hell site social media will be to uh, put the sensor in your brain. Um, but yeah, that then thank you, it, Daddy Musk, yeah. for opening up this new um, this new potential future for us. I, de- I developed <laughs> Neuralink so that um, I would uh, something would be able to tell me to stop uh, uh, arguing with my girlfriend. <laughs> I would get me out of a lot of really dangerous situations. Did you guys ever see the Mr. Show sketch where they get a song uh, surgically implanted into their... their... (laughs) Oh, goodness. I I I, I, uh, just am unable to remember any of my girlfriend's songs, so I want them downloaded into my (laughs) brain so that she'll stop being mad at me. That's actually why he had the pig with multiple implants, because each one can really only hold one song. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's a subscription model. Yeah. yeah. A thousand songs in your brain. Yeah. yeah. For only put a whole, a month. Yeah. He's going to just put a whole iPod shuffle in his head. Yeah. Oh, it's like the future on my iPhone. Right. Yeah. yeah. Might as well. Did you see <laughs> right that, with how iPod. big that hole was that they have to drill in your skull? They could fit it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, dude. Yeah. Oh, man. All well, right. Well, um, I think that I think that about does it for us. Um, is there anything that you'd like to plug? I mean, we should definitely plug your Twitter if for no other reason than the fact that your handle is Big Black Jacobin, which is my <laughs> new favorite all-time Twitter handle. Thank you. Uh, I don't. Uh, yeah, that our pod is uh, we where we also rip on uh, tech and how stupid people are. We're thinking of like maybe we got to figure out a way to do. Um, 
do people's voices because that was a really good ta- uh, Elon Musk uh, voice. <laughs> David kills it at Elon Musk, I have to say. Chris does a great Alex Jones. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, oh, yeah. I am Preston. known. <laughs> 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 I'm known for my Marianne Williamson. Yeah. Um, Hell yeah. So, yeah, so that's uh, This Machine Kills podcast, which actually David will be uh, featured on. Yeah, pretty soon. as well. Yeah. yeah, so you can check that out at uh, on Twitter. It's Machine Kills Pod. Um, great, great title for a podcast. It really is. is. But anyway, yeah, and that. people can check out your writing at uh, Vice's Motherboard. And I think that's about it. Anything else you have going on recently that's that's been cooking up? Uh, I've been doing a lot of research on Masayoshi's son and his quest to destroy uh, capitalism, and uh, that's Sweet. been <laughs> that's been fun. Uh, stay it. tuned for something on that in Great. a few months, maybe. I don't know how long it'll take. All right, awesome. well, uh, Ed on Wayso Junior. Thank you so much for coming on Iron Weeds. Thank you. Hey, thank you for having me on. So today yeah. for our wildflower, we have something a little different. We have something that's not necessarily like good news in terms of like the world is changing for the better um but we do have something that's like fun and a callback to our bonus episode on free britney um if you haven't heard that you can find it for as little as a dollar a month at uh patreon.com slash ironweeds um britney this is from the bbc so you know it's real this is not like (laughs) some fucking new york post some fucking like washington examiner shit this is bbc yeah like like british taxpayers went to funding this story yeah dude (laughs) fucking little ladies in like uh hartford berkshire fire school york peppermint patty land (laughs) (laughs) buckingham yeah buckingham yeah well no that's just the palace isn't it is it is there a city i I think it's a an area i don't don't know (laughs) george george felder was let us straight on this sorry george um britney spears appears to endorse the hashtag free britney movement so cue god save the queen music right here (laughs) (laughs) so to recap um Britney Spears has been under a conservatorship since her, quote-unquote, public breakdown in 2008. Um, her father, Jamie, has filled the role as her court-appointed court guardian for most of that time. Now, Britney is trying to have her father removed from his power of her estate and has argued that the public has a right to know what is happening. According to her lawyer in a court filing on Thursday, quote, the world is watching. The whole world is watching. (laughs) He literally says at one point, uh, I don't think it's an overstatement to say the whole world is watching. Who's Brittany? The The people's people's Brittany. (laughs) So so we did talk on our our bonus episode about uh, Britney Spears is basically like not in charge of her life. She is, you know, treated like a like children have more autonomy than Britney Spears does. Her children. Her (laughs) children. Yeah, Yeah. even her children. And she's just like kind of trapped in a gilded cage with like a, a a, an allowance, a nice allowance, but still, like, she doesn't have control of her She's own not allowed money. to drive. She yeah. is restricted on what kind of visitors she can have. Um, you know, she's basically, a lot of people have made allegations that she's even being sex trafficked. That is wildly conspiratorial, and we do not endorse that claim on this podcast. But, you know, you never know. It's possible. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, some, so, some fucked up shit happened in the Disney uh, club. Yeah, What's you know. The, Walt, uh, the, the Dis- Disney... Kids, uh, Mickey Mouse Club. Mickey, Mickey Mouse, Mouse Club. Club. Nice, nice. Uh, 
Um, so Spears' comments came in response to a motion from her father who wants to seal a recent filing in the case. We don't know what the filing is. We know that Brittany did not show up to her last court appearance uh, due to what they called technical reasons, which is very bizarre to me because she has a multi-million dollar estate estate like how did she probably the skype has, not work yeah she probably has know. some fios like it's- yeah um so uh britney is quote vehemently opposed to this effort by her father to keep her legal struggle hidden away in the closet as a family secret this is according to her lawyer samuel ingham the third nice um now we know why the BBC is covering it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Her lawyers. Why is it, it that whenever British? anyone is like the second or the third or the fourth, it's like British? Why do we... I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Because, because the, the British, they're, they're on this little island, and they only know like five names you're such so a fucking to... bigot you're gonna lose us our three uk listeners with your fucking bigotry um so spears's teams appear to endorse the hashtag free britney movement um which argues that the star is being held against her will by people who stand to gain financially from her situation free britney supporters frequently protest outside of court hearings and the campaign has won support from celebrities including Cher, miley cyrus and actress Ariel Winter, I don't know who the fuck that is, who herself won emancipation from her mother as a teenager. So whatever that is. Hmm. Um, Brittany's lawyer writes, at this point in her life, when she is trying to regain some measure of personal autonomy, Brittany welcomes and appreciates the informed support of her many fans. So here we have a direct reference to all those crazies on Instagram that we talked about in the bonus episode who were like, wear green in your next Instagram post if you need help. And then yeah. she like has a green, you know, flower or something and all this stuff. So they, they appear to be directly referencing the kind of, let's call it activism, be, being generous that's happening on TikTok and Instagram uh, when Britney Spears posts. Jamie Spears has previously called the fan-led hashtag free Britney movement a joke and characterized its supporters as conspiracy theorists. Um, Jamie Spears said, quote, I have to report every nickel and dime spent to the court every year. How the hell would I steal something? He said this to the New York Post. Um, Brittany's attorney Ingham says uh, in response, um, far from being a conspiracy theory or a joke as James. Now, I don't know if this is like some kind of weird aggro thing, but like he calls him James, even though everybody calls him Jamie. But um in large part, this scrutiny is a reasonable and even predictable response of James's aggressive use of the sealing procedure over the years to minimize the amount of meaningful information made available to the public. I don't see any direct quotes from Brittany. It all seems to be coming through her lawyer. But, you know, nonetheless, I mean, this is somebody who it seems like of what little autonomy she has, Brittany has selected this lawyer to work on her behalf. So. You know, um, I don't know. Hopefully, like, something comes of this. It's disturbing that even a a pop queen, somebody in what we would imagine the highest echelons of society, has her movement and actions this highly restricted. Like, that doesn't bode well for the rest of us folks. So, She really seems like the the perfect example of alienated labor in a lot of mm. way where like she like but she also has what david harvey would call like monopoly rent like indirect monopoly rent like capabilities where like just being near her 
allows you to sell stuff mm-hmm. uh, based on her fame. Yeah. Right? You know, so, like, you can, like, sell a picture of yourself with her or, like... You know, I, I don't know, just, or like just knowing God, her. I never for, want to be famous. Yeah, just like knowing, <laughs> just like knowing her. Do not a share this bit. show. Chris is terrified of fame. <laughs> yeah. You're just knowing her a little bit makes you famous too. Yeah, yeah. Right. So, like in the the immortal words of uh, Rob Blagojevich, you know, like they've got a real fucking. I got this valuable uh, thing, and I'm not just going to give thing. it away for nothing. Yeah, and Jamie isn't going to give it away for nothing, and and yeah, it's it's just like really disturbing to watch this this person who obviously. Like she creates value through her labor, but she is also capital, and it's yeah. horrifying. Yeah, yeah, and has been way. since yeah. she was like nine huh. years old. Yeah. You know, like this woman has never been free again. Mickey Mouse Club, and you know it's sick. She was because, on Star Search yeah, because, too before because, she was even in Mickey Mouse Club. Yeah, and like Mickey Mouse never wears a shirt. That guy's a fucking no. He never weirdo. wears pants. No, he never wears a shirt. He's got. Oh, the I'm red thinking pants. of Winnie the Pooh. Yeah, yeah, yeah Winnie yeah. the Pooh. Is or Don, uh, that's another. Yeah, Don, or Donald Don Duck. Duck. Yeah, yeah Donald he doesn't Duck, wear yeah. pants. Yeah, but when he goes to sleep, he puts on the whole night, old, oh, yeah. old tiny nighttime yeah. pajamas yeah, with right. the hat. So that's strange. He wears huh. more clothes to go to bed than he does like outside. Like, it's fucked up. That's that's, a, that's that guy's a freak. Yeah, it, it it's almost surprising this hasn't happened more like in the sense that we as a american culture produce these like pop stars right and it's like being a pop star especially a, a child like star um is like the perfect incubation environment for like some type of mental health crisis right and like some type of like break with what people conventionally understand as like reality as well as the fact that like you're directly tied into the machinations of our um economy which are like maddening in their own right yeah they're Um, inhuman yeah yeah and 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 basically i see her quote-unquote breakdown as like one of the most human things (laughs) imaginable right yeah like i was in that situation i would have broken down way early (laughs) she shaved her head and hit paparazzi with an umbrella yeah and like it's chose a bad boyfriend like literally and wore that whole jeans outfit that one that was actually disturbing that that one is that one is pretty upsetting yeah but But, yeah it's it's like if you are already kind of a fucked up person then like you become elon musk and you like are able to ride that wave into like a really good like life as a as a uh aristocrat but if you are inherently a good person like i think we all believe britney spears is then it just breaks you yeah you know it's been uh suggested many times and there seems to be good evidence for it that britney spears uh suffers from bipolar disorder uh long time listeners will know that i also have bipolar disorder and my name is also britney so i do also and it's spelled the same and i'm also a communist (laughs) much like britney spears so like i have you know maybe this story doesn't like sound that like important or interesting to some people but like for me it kind of hits close to home because i think a lot about how my life could have gone very differently if somebody had decided during my most let's say turbulent times in life that like i just shouldn't be given control over myself and my body and my my you know goings comings and goings in the world and so for me like it really is an issue of like ableism and the rights of people who don't 
operate in a sort of normative framework for the rest of society. And I've also said in the past, like a lot of artists are people who have mental illnesses and particularly bipolar disorder. I mean, the list of famous people throughout history who are assumed to have had bipolar disorder. uh, One of the most recent ones I came across was Nietzsche. Many people think that uh, Mm. Nietzsche had bipolar disorder, but it makes you very susceptible to manipulation. You can be, um, induced to put out a lot of labor, whether that's, you know, you're like dancing and singing or, you know, you're writing or whatever else, because you can harness these manic episodes for like the production of content. So for me, like a lot of it is kind of personal because I, you know, I'm not a very good dancer. Uh, Oh, you're you're wonderful. I'm not a very good dancer, but I do see in Britney Spears' story, like something that any of us could be susceptible to at any time. Oh, yeah. Um, and so, you know, I think it's, I think it's heartening that like some movement is being made in terms of gaining her autonomy back. And I think it's a really tragic story. I think, uh, I don't often feel affinity for like any rich people, but you know, in this instance, she really has been treated like a child her entire life and it's it's sad and it's disturbing and she's a i truly do believe that she's a real talent like she's a real she's an artist again we talked about this on our bonus episode but like the role that she a lot of people think that you know um and at the time that britney spears was kind of like coming becoming popular there was a a trend in music journalism to really only value like the grungy and the edgy and the quote-unquote authentic and so she was downplayed a lot as like not being a true artist but in fact she played a huge role in her own branding and marketing i mean she made a lot of the artistic decisions that led to her being such a star and i i do believe that she is you know a real artistic talent and it's uh it's a stain on all of us that someone can just seize her autonomy in that way and and turn her into Capital. Yeah, and the, and the question of how do you convince uh, people in a insane world that we live in uh, after you've been categorized as like you know unfit mentally or or whatever? How how do you convince people uh, that you're either better or that that uh, original diagnosis wasn't correct? Is sort of like an open question, and or that within- even with your diagnosis, you're still a full valuable human being who yes, deserves, exactly. yeah. And, uh, you know, this is, uh, I think like uh, I talked about on that episode, this is a a fear of mine, which is, you know, like being categorized for my perspective as as being, you know, like mentally unfit for like being, you know, around and how do you, how do you get back from that? So I mean, literally like a diagnostic criteria for determining if somebody has mental illness is your, is the extent to which it interferes with the function of your productive life. That's literally how we diagnose it Mm. is, can you function under capitalism? Like, you know, if, if we lived in a different society where my level of productivity didn't dictate the extent to which I'm a normal functioning person, I probably wouldn't be considered bipolar i would just be you know and look i like i'm grateful for the treatment bipolar disorder has it 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 destroys gray matter the more episodes you have over the course of your life the more it literally like hurts your brain as an organ it leads to dementia 
ironically, the medication that I take for it does the same thing, but you know, whatever, at least I, (laughs) at least I don't like go on, you know, $3,000 Amazon shopping binges, um, twice a year. But, but it is interesting the way that that intersects with the capitalist mode of production and the narrative of, you know, the individual as the kind of the purpose of your life is to make money for somebody above you. Um, I think that that really, the, the thing about Brittany, not me, the, the other Brittany, is that it puts in in sharp relief the way that your productivity is directly linked with any notions of your mental health. Wellness, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so yeah, like, celebrities aren't your friend, and they're not just like us, but this this is a case where even in the, the, the extremes, we find like something that is universally true. Until yeah. Britney Spears is free. None of us are free. <laughs> oh, jeez. So that'll do it for this episode of Iron Weeds. We got um, some uh, linen this week? We got a little linen. So uh, it's basically, you know, talking, it's it's a really fascinating point. One of the reasons I like linen is because it gives us a, Marx is a slog and he wrote so much and a lot of it is dense. Lenin is not dense, at least not in State and Rev. Like he's quite straightforward yeah. um and so he gives us a new lens i often find marks uh it's good to read the original text but i often find him uh more useful when read through a second party because other people who are smarter than me have really thought thought a lot about what he wrote and the so parlance of, of the time is, has changed exactly and lenin well. is writing in the you know the early 20th century marx was writing in the you know mid to late 19th century so like some of that is useful as well but basically lenin is talking here about the ways that the paris commune influenced marx's idea of the state and the role of it and like essentially marx's conclusion after the paris commune is that the proletariat needs to um parody satire of the bourgeois state so that's what we're going to be talking about in this reading um and again you know lenin is railing against these what today we would probably write off as the libs saying that like no you can't just appropriate the bourgeois state for your own ends something more dramatic needs to be done yeah that was only the first revolution well, yeah, I mean, you have the bourgeois revolution, right? Which is a necessary component on the road to communism. You have to have the, the, the move from a serfdom society to a bourgeois, you know, mode of production, the capitalist mode of production is a necessary step. This is one of the reasons that people talk about the Russian revolution not being true socialism is because like they never really fully moved from a peasant society to an urban worker society. And people can like litigate the extent to which that's true or whether or not that explains the failures of the soviet union whatever else but that's basically what we're getting into today um don't speed run dialectical materialism (laughs) (laughs) and i think it's relevant to some of the stuff that we talked with ed about you know handing this data over to the state well we don't have a dictatorship of the proletariat we don't currently have a state that functions primarily or exclusively in the interests of the working class. So those are some scary questions for us to to deal with. And even in, you know, Stalin's USSR, like you have the secret police using information on civilians to do horrible things. So they're all questions we have to take very, very seriously. And I, I hope that Lenin's exegesis on what is to be done with the state and the shift to a dictatorship of the proletariat are illuminating 
Um, a lot of this stuff is, you know, let's say outdated, but I do think that it continues to be relevant in our conception of like what we build next. Fuck yeah. Very cool. And so in the meantime, you can find us on Twitter. Ironweeds Pod. You can find us on Instagram. Ironweeds Pod. Please get in touch with, uh, you know, we love getting your emails. They're so much fun for us to read when they're nice. And honestly, all of them are nice. But um, thanks for that. And, the best uh, emails. We get the per- best emails, perfect. folks. Tremendous emails. <laughs> perfect. People are saying it more and more. Really? Email. Frankly. You, you know what you can do? You can email <laughs> ironweedspod at gmail.com Tremendous. Thank you so much. We love you. Bye bye. Melania, where's my McDonald's? (laughs) (laughs) Chapter 3 Experience of the Paris Commune of 1871 Marx's Analysis Part 1 What made the Communards attempt heroic? It is well known that in the autumn of 1870, a few months before the Commune, Marx warned the Paris workers that any attempt to overthrow the government would be the folly of despair. But when, in March 1871, a decisive battle was forced upon the workers and they accepted it, when the uprising had become a fact, Marx greeted the proletarian revolution with the greatest enthusiasm, in spite of unfavorable auguries. Marx did not persist in the pedantic attitude of condemning an untimely movement, as did the ill-famed Russian renegade from Marxism, Plahanov, who in November 1905 wrote encouragingly about the workers' and peasants' struggle, but after December 1905 cried, liberal fashion, they should not have taken up arms. Marx, however, was not only enthusiastic about the heroism of the communards, who, as he expressed it, stormed heaven. Although the mass revolutionary movement did not achieve its aim, he regarded it as a historic experience of enormous importance, as a certain advance of the world proletarian revolution, as a practical step that was more important than hundreds of programs and arguments. Marx endeavored to analyze this experiment, to draw tactical lessons from it and re-examine his theory in light of it. The only correction Marx thought it necessary to make to the Communist Manifesto he made on the basis of the revolutionary experience of the Paris Commune. The last preface to the new German edition of the Communist Manifesto, signed by both its authors, is dated June 24, 1872. In this preface, the authors, Karl Marx and Frederick Engels, say that the program of the Communist Manifesto, quote, has in some details become out of date. They go on to say, quote, one thing especially was proved by the Commune, that the working class cannot simply lay hold of the ready-made state machinery and wield it for its own purposes, end quote. The authors took the words that are in single quotation marks in this passage, the working class cannot simply lay hold of the ready-made state machinery and wield it for its own purposes, from Marx's book, The Civil War in France. Thus, Marx and Engels regarded one principle and fundamental lesson of the Paris Commune as being of such enormous importance that they introduced it as an important correction in the Communist Manifesto. Most characteristically, it is this important correction that has been distorted by the opportunists, and its meaning probably is not known to nine-tenths, if not ninety-nine hundredths, of the readers of the Communist Manifesto. We shall deal with this distortion more fully farther on, in a chapter devoted specifically to distortions. 
Here, it will be sufficient to note that the current, vulgar interpretation of Marx's famous statement just quoted is that Marx here allegedly emphasizes the idea of slow development in contradistinction to the seizure of power, and so on. As a matter of fact, the exact opposite is the case. Marx's idea is that the working class must break up, smash the ready-made state machinery, and not confine itself merely to laying hold of it. On April 12, 1871, just at the time of the Commune, Marx wrote to Kugelman, quote, If you look up the last chapter of my 18th Brumaire, you will find that I declare that the next attempt of the French Revolution will be no longer, as before, to transfer the bureaucratic military machine from one hand to another, but to smash it, and this is the precondition for every real people's revolution on the continent, and this is what our heroic party comrades in Paris are attempting, end quote. The letters of Marx to Kugelman have appeared in Russian in no less than two editions, one of which I edited and supplied with a preface. The words, to smash the bureaucratic military machine, briefly express the principal lesson of Marxism regarding the tasks of the proletariat during a revolution in relation to the state. And this is the lesson that has been not only completely ignored, but positively distorted by the prevailing Kautskyite interpretation of Marxism. As for Marx's reference to the 18th Brumaire, we have quoted the relevant passage in full above. It is necessary to note, in particular, two points in the above-quoted argument of Marx. First, he restricts his conclusion to the continent. This was understandable in 1871, when Britain was still the model of a purely capitalist country, but without a militarist clique and, to a considerable degree, without a bureaucracy. Marx, therefore, excluded Britain, where a revolution, even a people's revolution, then seemed possible, and indeed was possible, without the precondition of destroying ready-made state machinery. Today, in 1917, at the time of the First Great Imperialist War, this restriction by Marx is no longer valid. Both Britain and America, the biggest and the last representatives in the whole world of Anglo-Saxon liberty, in the sense that they had no militaristic cliques and bureaucracy, have completely sunk into the all-European, filthy, bloody morass of bureaucratic military institutions, which subordinate everything to themselves and suppress everything. Today, in Britain and America, too, the precondition for every real people's revolution is the smashing, the destruction of the ready-made state machinery, made and brought up to the European, general imperialist, perfection in those countries in the years 1914-17. to Secondly, particular attention should be paid to Marx's extremely profound remark that the destruction of the bureaucratic military state machine is the precondition for every real people's revolution. This idea of a people's revolution seems strange coming from Marx, so that the Russian Plahanovites and Mensheviks, those followers of Struve who wish to be regarded as Marxist, might possibly declare such an expression to be a slip of the pen on Marx's part. They have reduced Marxism to such a state of wretchedly liberal distortion that nothing exists for them beyond the antithesis between bourgeois revolution and proletarian revolution, and even this antithesis they interpret in an utterly lifeless way. If we take the revolutions of the 20th century as examples, we shall, of course, have to admit that the Portuguese and the Turkish revolutions are both bourgeois revolutions. Neither of them, however, is a people's revolution 
since in neither does the mass of the people, their vast majority, come out actively, independently, with their own economic and political demands to any noticeable degree. By contrast, although the Russian bourgeois revolution of 1905-07 displayed no such brilliant successes as at time fell to the Portuguese and Turkish revolutions, it was undoubtedly a real people's revolution, since the mass of the people, their majority, the very lowest social groups, crushed by oppression and exploitation, rose independently and stamped on the entire course of the revolution the imprint of their own demands, their attempt to build in their own way a new society in place of the old society that was being destroyed. In Europe, in 1871, the proletariat did not constitute the majority of the people in any country on the continent. A people's revolution, one actually sweeping the majority into its stream, could be such only if it embraced both the proletariat and the peasants. These two classes are united by the fact that the bureaucratic military state machine oppresses, crushes, exploits them. To smash this machine, to break it up, is truly in the interest of the people, of their majority, of the workers and most of the peasants, is the precondition for a free alliance of the poor peasant and the proletarians, whereas without such an alliance, democracy is unstable and socialist transformation is impossible. As is well known, the Paris Commune was actually working its way towards such an alliance, although it did not reach its goal owing to a number of circumstances, internal and external. Consequently, in speaking of a real people's revolution, Marx, without in the least discounting the special features of the petty bourgeois, he spoke a great deal about them, and often, took strict account of the actual balance of class forces in most of the continental countries of Europe in 1871. On the other hand, he stated that the smashing of the state machine was required by the interests of both the workers and the peasants, that it united them, that it placed before them the common task of removing the parasite and of replacing it by something new. But what exactly? Part 2. What is to replace the smashed state machine? In 1847, in the Communist Manifesto, Marx's answer to this question was as yet a purely abstract one. To be exact, it was an answer that indicated the tasks, but not the ways of accomplishing them. The answer given in the Communist Manifesto was that this machine was to be replaced by, quote, the proletariat organized as the ruling class by the, quote, winning of the battle of democracy. Marx did not indulge in utopias. He expected the experience of the mass movement to provide the reply to the question as to the specific forms this organization of the proletariat as the ruling class would assume, and as to the exact matter in which this organization would be combined with the most complete, most consistent winning of the battle of democracy. Marx subjected the experience of the commune, meager as it was, to the most careful analysis in The Civil War in France. Let us quote the most important passages of this work. Originating from the Middle Ages, there developed in the 19th century, quote, the centralized state power, with its ubiquitous organs of standing army, police, bureaucracy, clergy, and judicature, end quote. With the development of class antagonisms between capital and labor, quote, State power assumed more and more the character of a public force organized for the suppression of the working class, 
of a machine of class rule. After every revolution, which marks an advance in the class struggle, the purely coercive character of the state power stands out in bolder and bolder relief. End quote. After the revolution of 1848 to 49, state power became, quote, the national war instruments of capital against labor, end quote. The Second Empire consolidated this. Quote, the direct antithesis to the empire was the commune, end quote. It was the specific form of, quote, a republic that was not only to remove the monarchical form of class rule, but class rule itself, end quote. What was this specific form of the proletarian socialist republic? What was the state it began to create? Quote, the first decree of the commune, therefore, was the suppression of the standing army and the substitution for it of the armed people, end quote. This demand now figures in the program of every party calling itself socialist. The real worth of their program, however, is best shown by the behavior of our social revolutionists and Mensheviks, who, right after the revolution of February 27th, refused to carry out this demand. Quote, the commune was formed of the municipal councillors, chosen by universal suffrage in the various wards of the town, responsible and revocable at any time. The majority of its members were naturally working men, or acknowledged representatives of the working class. The police, which until then had been the instrument of the government, was at once stripped of its political attributes and turned into the responsible, and at all times revocable, agent of the commune. So were the officials of all other branches of the administration. From the members of the commune downwards, the public service had to be done at workmen's wages. The privileges and the representation allowances of the high dignitaries of state disappeared along with the high dignitaries themselves. Having once got rid of the standing army and the police, the instruments of physical force of the old government, the commune proceeded at once to break the instrument of spiritual suppression, the power of the priests. The judicial functionaries lost that sham independence. They were thenceforth to be elective, responsible, and revocable. End quote. The commune, therefore, appears to have replaced the smash state machine only by fuller democracy, abolition of the standing army, all officials to be elected and subject to recall. But as a matter of fact, this only signifies a gigantic replacement of certain institutions by other institutions of a fundamentally different type. This is exactly a case of quantity being transformed into quality. Democracy, introduced as fully and consistently as is at all conceivable, is transformed from bourgeois into proletarian democracy. From the state, a special force for the suppression of a particular class, into something which is no longer the state proper. It is still necessary to suppress the bourgeoisie and crush their resistance. This was particularly necessary for the commune. And one of the reasons for its defeat was that it did not do this with sufficient determination. The organ of suppression, however, is here the majority of the population and not a minority, as was always the case under slavery, serfdom, and wage slavery. And since the majority of people itself suppresses its oppressors, a special force for suppression is no longer necessary. In this sense, the state begins to wither away. Instead of the special institutions of a privileged minority, privileged officialdom, the chiefs of the standing army, 
the majority itself can directly fulfill all these functions. And the more functions of state power are performed by the people as a whole, the less need there is for the existence of this power. In this connection, the following measures of the commune, emphasized by Marx, are particularly noteworthy. The abolition of all representation allowances, and of all monetary privileges to officials, the reduction of the remuneration of all servants of the state to the level of workmen's wages. This shows more clearly than anything else the turn from bourgeois to proletarian democracy, from the democracy of the oppressors to that of the oppressed classes, from the state as a special force for the suppression of a particular class to the suppression of the oppressors by the general force of the majority of the people, the workers and the peasants. And it is on this particularly striking point, perhaps the most important as far as the problem of the state is concerned, that the ideas of Marx have been most completely ignored. In popular commentaries, the number of which is legion, this is not mentioned. The thing done is to keep silent about it, as if it were a piece of old-fashioned naivete, just as Christians, after their religion had been given the status of state religion, forgot the naivete of primitive Christianity with its democratic revolutionary spirit. The reduction of the remuneration of high state officials seems simply a demand of naive, primitive democracy. One of the founders of modern opportunism, the ex-social democrat Edward Bernstein, has more than once repeated the vulgar bourgeois jeers at primitive democracy. Like all opportunists, and like the present Kautskyites, he did not understand at all that, first of all, the transition from capitalism to socialism is impossible without a certain reversion to primitive democracy. For how else can the majority, and then the whole population without exception, proceed to discharge state functions? And that, secondly, primitive democracy based on capitalism and capitalist culture is not the same as primitive democracy in prehistoric or pre-capitalist times. Capitalist culture has created large-scale production, factories, railways, the postal service, telephones, etc. And on this basis, the great majority of the functions of the old state power have become so simplified and can be reduced to such exceedingly simple operations of registration, filing, and checking that they can be easily performed by every literate person, can quite easily be performed for ordinary workmen's wages, and that these functions can, and must, be stripped of every shadow of privilege, of every semblance of official grandeur. All officials, without exception, elected and subject to recall at any time, their salaries reduced to the level of ordinary workmen's wages, these simple and self-evident democratic measures, while completely uniting the interests of the workers and the majority of the peasants, at the same time serve as a bridge leading from capitalism to socialism. These measures concern the reorganization of the state, the purely political reorganization of society. But of course, they acquire their full meaning and significance only in connection with the expropriation of the expropriators, either bring accomplishment or in preparation, i.e. with the transformation of capitalist private ownership of the means of production into social ownership. The commune, Marx wrote, quote, made the catchword of all bourgeois revolutions, cheap government, a reality by abolishing the two greatest sources of expenditure, the army and the officialdom, end quote. 
From the peasants, as from other sections of the petty bourgeoisie, only an insignificant few rise to the top, get on in the world in the bourgeois sense, i.e., become either well-to-do, bourgeois, or officials in secure and privileged positions. In every capitalist country where there are peasants, as there are in most capitalist countries, the vast majority of them are oppressed by the government and long for its overthrow, long for cheap government. This can only be achieved by the proletariat, and by achieving it, the proletariat at the same time takes a step towards the socialist reorganization of the state.